Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode and find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. And if you'd be so kind to leave us a comment there as well, we would appreciate it so that you can help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Research Fellow and Librarian here at Acton. Today, we'll examine the kerfuffle over Omicron school closings, the new light-on-crime policies of the Manhattan DA, and the conviction a former Theranos CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. But first, I want to go to the Capitol building, not storming it, uh, but talking very briefly because we've been off for the last two weeks for the holiday. Uh, Last week was the first anniversary of January 6th and the storming of the Capitol building. And I didn't want this to go by unaddressed, but I also don't want to spend a ton of time on it because if you're looking For commentary on January 6th and the first anniversary of January 6th, you will have no problem finding a lot of it. Uh, Whether or not it's worth your time or valuable, that's up for you to decide. So I thought we would offer some very brief thoughts on January 6th before we move on to our other topics. So, Sam, I will just start with you then. Uh, One year after what happened on January 6th, uh, what importance or significance do you think the first anniversary holds and have we learned anything in the year since it happened? It seems to me that we're very much back to where we were in the sense that the whole January 6th thing has essentially broken down in terms of extremely, let's call it what it is, partisan interpretations of the whole thing. So I've yet to read uh, many people who have set, sort of stepped back and taken a relatively nonpartisan view of the thing. I guess that's how you describe it. So Democrats see it as insurrection. Republicans see it as um, a riot. Uh, Democrats see it as a fundamental challenge to the constitutional republic. Republicans say, well, okay, but I notice that you people are not talking about the destruction that was wrought by Black Lives Matter through numerous American cities last year. So I think it's sort of very predictable. And I have to say, I don't think that uh, President Biden's speech for the occasion really challenged either of those narratives in the sense that rather than looking forward and saying maybe there are ways in which we can reconcile, which is what is obviously a very politically divided country. He gave a highly partisan, very charged address that uh, I think did the exact opposite. It made me think a little bit of how Lincoln talked about the Confederacy and the Confederates towards the end of the war. It was very much – and that's a very serious thing, right, because there you genuinely did have – insurrection, uh, people leaving the union, etc. And uh, Lincoln's rhetoric at the end of the Civil War was very, very different to what we heard from President Biden last week. So it's sort of pretty much predictable, I think, how people are talking about it and viewing it and uh, contextualizing it. Yeah, it was almost surprising to me how unsurprising all of it was that you Mm -hmm. had the same arguments we've been having for a year leading up to that essentially going, well, with the exception of the couple of, like maybe the two weeks that immediately followed all of it, where it was almost a microcosm of the period that followed 9-11. Again, I'm not making a comparison there between it and 9-11, but you had everybody more or less on the same page for a very brief moment, and then it all fell apart again. But it was just, you know, almost shockingly predictable that uh, you had Democrats overmaking the argument about it and you had Republicans underplaying it or engaging in some kind of an anti-anti-January 6th posture. And there, of course, was not a whole lot of helpful conversation, which it would be worthwhile, I think, to explore how did we get there. And that doesn't just mean the two months to me leading up to it. It means that you can trace back over a period of time at least to the 2000 election of people 
calling into question the results of elections with none of those incidents individually being as serious as what happened on January 6th, but all of them playing a part in starting a snowball rolling down a hill that led to what we saw on January 6th. But it was just so predictably predictable to me. There was one surprise, and this was uh, what was uh, divulged that uh, Vice President Harris was actually in the DNC building uh, immediately before uh, the pipe bombs were discovered outside of the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee in Washington, D.C. And this is, this is the, 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 the curious thing, you know, there are all the sort of preoccupations of January 6th, but to my mind, the sort, sort of single most troubling event were, were these bombs um, for which no mm-hmm. one has been apprehended, for which we've heard very little about the edu- the investigation. And in fact, you know, just the, the news, um, the news that broke on this anniversary that wasn't a rehash of these sort of political narratives was that uh, the vice president was then there um, immediately before. And it seems like, again, you know, there, there are serious questions about what took place on January 6th, but nobody seems interested in asking those questions. Um, and it's, and it's, but, uh, you know, there's, there's one, one piece of new in this. Yeah. I maybe, uh, we'll just wrap it up here. Cause like I said, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but <clears throat> I will uh, credit John Podhoritz from Commentary for uh, for pointing this out. Uh, a lot of people pointed to the ceremony that was had in commemoration of what happened on January 6th and the oddest moment of that ceremony being where Nancy Pelosi tossed it to Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast of Hamilton to sing the song Dear Theodosia from the show Hamilton. John Podhoritz made this observation. I, I'll share it all for, uh, all for you, for those of you who don't listen to the commentary podcast. Dear Theodosia is a song that appears in the show, and it is the sympathetic song for Aaron Burr, who's essentially the villain of the story. He's the one who kills Alexander Hamilton in a duel. After the duel and after his vice presidency... Aaron Burr goes off and tries to raise an army in a uh, ends up being tried for treason in what was arguably a seditious act to set up some kind of kingdom of Burr after he is vice president. So the song they picked to sing inappropriately enough to have a song in the middle of this whole thing is the sympathetic song about a guy who engaged in seditious behavior after his vice presidency, which is just such a bizarrely odd pick. That just in fact, me, Eric, some would say that he engaged in seditious behavior during his well, vice yes, presidency. Well, yes, yes. Um, it, it is such a weird pick that just testifies to how sadly unserious people are being about something that probably deserves a little more serious treatment than it actually got last week. So why don't we move on from there? <clears throat> I want to move us to what I think is the the biggest issue right now and something that has been fascinating me, which is we've been watching the surge in COVID cases uh, from the Omicron variant. And the large big picture takeaway has been we're seeing a huge spike in cases, but we're not seeing a huge spike in hospitalizations and we're not seeing a corresponding spike in deaths, which indicates that this is – Uh, To borrow from former President Obama, um, you know, this is the variant we've been waiting for. As we argued on this, I argued on this podcast previously, I think it's a good thing that we're finally getting a more contagious but less deadly variant that should crowd out the others that were less contagious but more deadly. But what's amazing to me is the reaction, particularly from teachers' unions, has been so predictably the same. Chicago, where I used to live, is today um, going to have school canceled for the fourth consecutive class day. And that will probably continue for the full two weeks that the Chicago Teachers Union wants to keep it closed because nobody has the political clout right now to stand up to the Chicago Teachers Union, certainly not Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. 
But one of the things that I've noticed, admittedly, this is anecdotal, but having lived in Chicago for a considerable period of my life, I know people who have children in the Chicago public school system. And for about a year, I've watched them quietly seething about the way the COVID situation has been handled by Chicago public schools and the Chicago Teachers Union. I now see them not so quietly seething about it. And I'm wondering if this is the beginning of the end of public schools as we know them, and that it's not going to be curricular matters, it's not going to be critical race theory, it is going to be the teachers' unions so overplaying their hands to bring about a revolt of very angry parents who just do not want to tolerate this kind of thing anymore. I'll throw the question open. Is this the beginning of the end of public education as we know it? I would like to think so. I would like to think that there would be a major rethink on the part of many people when it comes to how public education operates today. Obviously, COVID has really highlighted some stark contrasts between government schools and private schools, be they uh, religious schools, be they Protestant, Jewish, Catholic schools, be they uh, these sort of virtue-based academies, etc. There's very stark highlights in terms of who's in charge and who cares about what. And it's very hard, I think, for people to deny that the way that the public teachers' unions have behaved in this regard is, well, basically, I think, uh, downright irresponsible and showing that given that they are a union for teachers, that their priority is what they consider to be the interests of teachers and the interests of students are not so important. So that's the first thing I would say. The thing that concerns me, however, of course, is that if one was to do something about this, then you have to make some significant political changes, which means uh, dealing with, by which I mean voting out, politicians in these very big cities who go along or enable or at least put up only passive, very passive, very token resistance <clears throat> to what teachers' unions want. And, of course, they won't. People in Chicago will continue voting for big government Democrats who, are in, who have the um, very close alliances with teachers' unions, whether it's Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, all these places – and it's, it points to a problem which I think marks a lot of these cities being that they're essentially one-party states and that won't change until enough people in these states decide, or cities I should say, decide that they're going to vote for alternative candidates. So if you are living in a place like Chicago and you're unhappy with how the public teachers, how public teacher unions are behaving, and you're dissatisfied with what the mayor is doing, then I'd suggest you may need to vote for other candidates. But of course, we know they don't. They keep voting for the same people over and over and over and over again. So unless there is a significant change of perspective, what they think is important. And unfortunately, I don't see the situation shifting in any significant political way. So this will dovetail a little bit with the next topic that we're going to talk about. But it's going to be interesting for me to watch what happens in New York City, uh, because I, while I agree with Sam and I have plenty of knowledge of uh, Chicago and I don't expect a whole lot of – I don't think there's anything more than um, – performative actions by Lori Lightfoot, who's now aggressively talking about the Chicago Teachers Union. Although I will acknowledge within the context of when she won election there, she was arguably the more reformist candidate within that. If you wanted to go with the person who was an absolute lackey of the teachers unions, there was that candidate in that race. And it was the person who was her primary challenger in that uh, in, in that primary. 
Uh, so it, it, it could have been worse. But in New York, it's a different story with Eric Adams, who's now the mayor there, who has taken a completely different tone. And having just come into office, and like I said, this will dovetail into the conversation about crime that we'll have following this. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see if a character like Eric Adams is capable of pushing for any of these things. Uh, it, we'll have to wait and see, but it looks at least there seems to be some kind of a test case. Whereas I, I would agree in Chicago and a lot of these other cities, it doesn't it doesn't seem as likely to me that there's going to be enough of a challenge to the power of the teachers' unions for it to really matter. There's also a question. I mean. And, and you alluded to this. Um, Mayor Lightfoot has been very strong in her condemnation of what is essentially a wildcat strike. Um, her predecessor, Rahm Emanuel, was also very confrontational with the teachers union in Chicago. Um which until they rolled him with an actual strike, and I, exactly. I will tell you, I will well, tell you exactly. from having lived there in Chicago at that time, once that That strike had gone on for a week and the reaction from the – from Rahm Emanuel and the Emanuel administration on the – if it started on a Monday, the following Monday, they filed a lawsuit to have a judge declare the strike illegal. And like that was supposed to be their silver bullet for fixing this thing. It's like if this is all they have in their arsenal – They're just going to capitulate before the end of the week. And sure enough, they capitulated before the end of the week. Well, and this is the question is this is a question of even the politicians realize at this point that it is not in their interest for this to happen and they are still powerless. And this is part of the danger of public sector unions in general. Um, This is one of those things where the way around it is is has to be a way around it. Um, and you've seen many states and localities implement school choice legislation. In Michigan, we had our uh, <clears throat> our uh, state house and senate pass such legislation. The governor has vetoed mm-hmm. it. They are now gathering signatures as we speak to try to get that on the ballot. And um, I think that's. I mean, the only way forward is around the unions, any sort of any sort of particularly in these large urban areas with very powerful unions and very powerful sort of political machines, um, you're not going, you know, if if at any if you're at all suspicious that the teachers unions interests and the public's and the students interests are not, in fact, always the same. um you're gonna have to you're gonna have to cut that Gordian knot by going around. It's it. worth mentioning here, Dan, that with regard to public sector unions, because essentially that's what the teachers union is, right? Because they are employed by state governments or local governments. It's worth remembering that people like Franklin D. Roosevelt thought there was a deep problem with having unionized public workers precisely because of the problems that you and Eric have been highlighting. They have, it gives them a power over elected officials that, for example, people who are members of unions in, say, manufacturing in the car industry or any number of private sector, private sector parts of the economy, public sector unions have a grip on things that private private unions, if you like, or unions in the private sector don't. And this is why people, Mr. New Deal himself, Franklin Roosevelt, thought that having public sector unions was a terrible idea because of the unique leverage they had over elected officials. And add to that the other problem that they're always negotiating with somebody else's money in that situation. At, at least in a private Precisely. sector con, uh, union conversation, you have some legitimate tension that exists there between the workers and the management. And you, know, you may be, you know, working to strike an arrangement for a more, you know, equal, equitable sharing of the profit that the company is making. Both parties in that situation, the public sector union situation, are bargaining with other people's money, which changes the dynamic in entirely because there really is no one looking out for the people who are the residents and the taxpayers of those communities. 
to what Sam was saying, I, the reason that I, I guess I'm trying to be more, well, even trying to be hopeful, I guess, is the uh, 15 years I spent in Chicago talking right now. I'm not even hopeful. I'm trying to be hopeful. That I'm trying to be hopeful in this situation is having witnessed the last two Chicago teachers union strikes, both of them, for the most part, they had the parents on their side. If you looked at public polling opinion data, if you just kind of got the sense of the community, the public was largely on their side because they were the, – the subjects that they were talking about were teacher compensation, funding for programs within schools. People are well aware of that a lot of schools have – you know, if you've heard the Harper High School episode of This American Life – that it was picked – they picked Harper High School in Inglewood because it was the school that had the most students killed during a given school year, that a lot of schools are looking for resources to deal with things like that. Uh, there, there were things that the kind of big city dwellers that you get in Chicago were far more amenable to supporting the teachers on. Um, I, I will add as a sidebar that I heard a great quote last week, which was from um, the neoconservative thinker Nathan Glazer, who made an observation I think is very true for our circumstances now. And I, I think this will also dovetail into our next conversation about crime, that sometime in the 1960s or the 1970s, big cities ceased doing the things that they were good at doing, like – picking up trash, like cleaning the streets, like fixing potholes, like running the schools, and try to do things that no one knows how to do, like curing poverty. And a lot of that curing poverty, curing inequality rhetoric is a part of the rhetoric of the Chicago Teachers Union. It's, it's things that no one knows how to do, but they appeal to the sensibilities of people who live in Chicago. What I think is different here is this isn't about those things. This isn't about the you know congressman problem of the Chicago Teachers Union where you may dislike the union, but you like your kid's teacher. This is about the massive repeated inconvenience or crisis for some families that is being foisted upon them by the Chicago Teachers Unions and the other big city teachers unions who are doing this unreasonable demands for – precautions for COVID-19 where, and somebody else, I think it was actually Chris Hayes from MSNBC. And it was like, didn't we pass legislation that gave billions of dollars to schools to implement COVID mitigation uh, techniques? What, what happened to all of that money? And it was like, you know, I, I felt like John McClain and Die Hard. Welcome to the party, pal. These schools misappropriate their funds all the time. And shock of all shocks, they didn't really do a whole lot to prepare themselves for another wave. And yet we have the situation right now. So the reason I'm at least trying to be hopeful, is the circumstances of what parents are enduring right now in Chicago public schools particularly are so different on their face that I, I think it can create a constituency for somebody to say, this is ridiculous and it needs to end. Can I just add one quick thing there uh, to what you're saying, Eric? And one is that I think Public choice economics gives us a pretty good insight in some of the dynamics of this, right? In the sense that <clears throat> organized interest groups like teachers unions, even if they are a minority within a given society, will always exert more influence than aggrieved people like, for example, parents in Chicago or any of these big cities who are very angry, but they're also dispersed mm -hmm. and unorganized and not in contact with each other and don't have lobbying power. So that's part of the, the problem, I think, in terms of moving the conversation and even policy forward when it comes to these types of questions, which to my mind leads to the unfortunate conclusion that if one wants to deal with this problem of public sector unions, trade unions, um, teachers' unions behaving in this way, then you have to bite the bullet and actually confront the unions themselves. And that's very hard in big democratic cities like New York, Chicago, etc., because that's one big part of their constituency. So that's, I think that's part of the political problem 
that might impede some of the changes that people like you and I would like to see happen. And what's a lot easier is leaving. Yes. Grand yes. Rapids. Grand Rapids, you know, is is close to Chicago. If you grow up in Grand Rapids like I do and move to a big city, chances are that city Chicago. Every person I know, to a man and woman, who is who I grew up with, who moved to Chicago, who loved the city, once they had children, they left. And they left because before this, before COVID, they thought the schools were essentially unusable for their children. And when you have an ostensible public service that the public would literally rather leave, disrupt their lives, find a new job, move, than take advantage of what is ostensibly a public service, you have a deep, deep problem. And a problem that's existed, you know, longer than COVID. A friend of mine used to point out, I think I I will try to recall the stat as accurately as I can, but it was either a third of, I I think it has impact either way, a third of all Chicago public schools teachers who have kids, or it may have been a third of all Chicago public schools teachers, sent their children to private schools. Of course. Ask yourself what, and his question was always, ask yourself, what do they know that you don't? That they're making such a choice. Eric, you can extend that to the choices, educational choices of most center-left politicians in America and around the world. A lot of them do not send their children to government schools. They send them to private schools and they're prepared to pay big dollars. So you have this disjunct, right, between, between wanting everyone else's children to go to government schools but not your own. I think here's also where you make the great point about hypocrisy, right? So clearly it's mm-hmm. hypocritical on their part to be advocates for everyone to go to those public schools, but they send their own kids to private schools. And <clears throat> you, I, I wouldn't want them to be, in a way, I wouldn't want them to be consistent on it. Like I, I, I want for all of those children the same great educational opportunities that the children of those politicians are, is, are going to get. And I'm, I'm glad that the children of those politicians are going to get a good education. The, what is revealed in all of that is what they are tacitly acknowledging about the state of Chicago public schools that they're not worth sending your kid to. To, to your point, Dan – I saw a tweet the other day. I can't remember who it was from, but it was good morning to the uh, Chicago Teachers Union and the Chicago public school system and all 23 percent of its students who can read this. You have 20 some percent who test at grade level in math and English. And as I think I've as I've told the story before and when I was living in Chicago for 15 years, I would have I would argue about different issues around education, the Chicago public school system, and I've been told I'm wrong for almost every reason that you could possibly imagine. But the one thing I've never heard is anyone who said, Cone, you're just wrong, man. CPS, that's a system that's educating kids. And Dan, you're absolutely right. And I'm like the inverse version of this in that I moved from, I moved to Chicago after college, had kids, lived in in the city of Chicago with kids for a while, But that realization was always going to be there, that the only choice at some point was to leave. A good friend of mine who is in the uh, northern suburbs of Chicago, his kid's high school made the decision to go to um, initially now to online learning. They're also making finals optional and no harm, which anybody who knows a high schooler knows exactly what that's going to cash out as, right? And as he said, almost everyone here is just kind of going along with it and almost celebrating them for it. And as he said to me, the only option is to leave. The only option left on the table for people like him is to leave and to go someplace else. And one thing to add to that, Eric, is that those people who leave and decide to go somewhere else for the sake of their children's education or more broadly because they're tired of having to deal with all the chaos that exists in many of these big cities – is that if they move to somewhere else, they move somewhere else, then they have to be conscious that they have to think very carefully about how they vote when they move to these new places because presumably they need to be reminded that you probably don't want to vote for people who would bring the same policies and the same ideas uh, to your new town, your new city, your new state than uh, that, that you're 
that were used in those states that you're escaping from. Since there's since this has been a phenomenon, there is some early return uh, social science on all of this that I've uh, if I can find if I can find it again, we'll include it as a link in the show notes. Uh, but my recollection of it is what you see amongst those people is that their voting trends on a national level tend to remain mostly the same, but their voting trends on a more local level are preservationist of the status quo because they moved there for that status quo. And as Mm -hmm. a result, they tend to, on a local level, vote for people who at least say they want to preserve the status quo. Well, look, these are obvious real-life experiments. We will see in places like um, Nashville is a good example how this plays out over time. But I want to move us along because I've teased it a couple times now to our next topic, which is the new policies that have been promulgated by the newly elected DA of Manhattan, the borough of Manhattan in New York, Alvin Bragg. I'm going to run through these really quickly here. So this memo that went out on his first day after being sworn into office on January 1st, on January 2nd, that goes out to the 500 or so prosecutors in the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, Armed robbers who use guns or other deadly weapons to stick up stores and other businesses will be prosecuted only for petty larceny, a misdemeanor, provided no victims were seriously injured and there's no, quote, genuine risk of physical harm to anyone. Armed robbery, a Class B felony, would typically be punishable by a maximum of 25 years in prison, while petty larceny uh, uh, subjects uh, offenders up to 364 days in jail and a $1,000 fine. Convicted criminals caught with weapons other than guns will have those felony charges downgraded to misdemeanors unless they're also charged with a more serious offense. Uh, Criminal possession of a weapon is a third degree class D felony and is punishable by up to seven years behind bars. Burglars who steal from residential storage areas, parts of homes that aren't, quote, accessible to a living area and businesses located in mixed use buildings will be prosecuted for low level class uh, D felony that only covers break-ins instead of more serious crimes. Drug dealers believed to be, quote, acting as a low level agent of a seller will be prosecuted only for misdemeanor possession. So I think what you what you see here and what interests me in this in what I think we should talk about is uh, we have produced work here at the Acton Institute that has been in the vein of what has been called criminal justice reform. Um, this for people like Alvin Bragg, I think would be they would call it criminal justice reform. Uh, but it's certainly it, to me, it, it raises the question of what is the future now of what I would consider more legitimate criminal justice reform. I I regard these kinds of policies as ridiculous and insane and not the kind of things that I think criminal justice reformers for the last decade or so or more have been talking about. Things like changing the nature of qualified immunity, wanting you know people, agents of the state who violate your civil constitutional rights to be accountable for doing things like that. this is taking it to an all new extreme. So what does this mean for more reasonable and I might argue necessary criminal justice reform efforts when you're seeing such high profile people as the DA of Manhattan basically saying that unless you kill somebody, you're just not going to go to jail for it? Well, there's a couple of points I think to make here, Eric. One is that the new DA in Manhattan is reflective of a broader trend that we've seen happening again in these big one-party cities across the country of prosecutors who are adopting these types of policies. So he's part of a more general trend in which the, the left has very much consciously thought about how to advance their cause and they've decided that this getting these types of offices in their hand hands is part of what they need to do. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think to keep in mind is to ask ourselves, well, what is some of the logic that's behind this? And I think part of the logic that's behind it is a sort of hard left agenda in that private property is just not that important. It's just not that significant. Taking someone else's private property is not considered to be a big deal in the eyes of large sections of the contemporary left in the United States. The third thing is that all prosecutors 
enjoy some discretion about what types of crimes they're going to prosecute insofar as the degree of emphasis they're going to put on particular crimes. And that usually has to do with things like workload, um, how many cases are coming forward, um, what's particularly urgent at a particular point in time. So, so prosecutors and also the ability of prosecutors to actually successfully prosecute particular cases, right? So the prosecutors make these types of decisions all the time. What's different in this instance is that I think there's a very clear ideological message that's being sent about how this DA and other prosecutors around the country view things like private property. Of course, this will also have the effect, I suspect, of accelerating a trend which you mentioned before, which is more and more people leaving these places because very few people, if they're able to, will stay in a place in which they do not feel safe, in which they have grave questions about whether rule of law will be maintained, and which they have grave questions about whether their private property will be protected should it be violated. We already know that New York is experiencing an exodus of people. This, I think, will only exacerbate that trend. You bring this back to allow me to bang on again about the problems in Chicago for another moment, uh, which uh, Kim Fox, who's the DA in uh, state's attorney, actually, in Chicago, and uh, the name you might recognize if you followed the uh, Jesse Smollett trial because she had some um, not-so-proud moments in that whole story. But to me, the, the, the bigger thing – and she – you know, this kind of progressive prosecutor project that has existed out there um, – you, you see the very clear examples of it in Philadelphia, in Manhattan now. Um, whether Kim Fox really falls into that I think is arguable, uh, although I think the – one of the most egregious decisions that her office has made – is with all the murders that happen in Chicago, the number of people who acquire these weapons through straw purchases is significant. But it is the policy of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office to not prosecute those straw buyers. Unsurprising then that the practice continues. Um, so I, I think there is – what you're going to see here I also think is a reaction from people who are going to argue for a replication of the kind of 90s tough-on-crime policies that were created, some of which I think were a completely reasonable reaction to the previous 25 years of American life, but some of which also I think we've kind of come to a consensus around they went too far. And if people advocating for more realistic – and reasonable and responsible criminal justice reform aren't going to, as Connor Friedersdorf in The Atlantic, and a good piece we'll throw in the show notes, uh, says they need to update their priors in the way that they talk about this. If that's not going to happen, then all criminal justice reform is going to get characterized as what Alvin Bragg is doing in Manhattan. Part of this issue, and, we, and, we've, and we've talked on, uh, on this podcast before about criminal justice reform. And one of the things is, is that encompasses a whole lot in people's minds. And part of it is, you know, crime is very different in a, you know, in a nation of 300 million, over 300 million people with communities ranging in size from a dozen to millions, um, law enforcement, criminal prosecution and criminal law looks different and it should, um, for those different contexts. That's part of what you know, subsidiarity is about. Um, that's also part of um, sort of uh, prudence in government. So there's there's a sense in which, you know, there's there's sort of three things that we talk about when we talk about criminal justice reform. One would be the criminal code itself, um, and there are there are efforts to change sentencing guidelines, to reconsider mandatory minimums, those sorts of things. And that's a legislative process and that's a deliberative and a democratic process. There's also this sort of prosecutorial issues and Sam is very right to point out that prosecutors should and it's absolutely essential for them to do their jobs to be able to have discretion 
and to exercise prudence in exactly how that criminal code comes to bear on the situations of people in their communities. Now, that's v- what, what, what I think we're seeing in New York is very different. I think it is, it is, it is uh, in its comprehensive nature, um, a way to sort of reinstantiate, a, a, a way to sort of deliver up a new criminal code, essentially, to, uh, to that district attorney's office. And the problem, I mean, there, there are all sorts of problems in terms of, you know, when we think about rule of law, there's also the problem that that can swing the next DA election. And if those policies do not deliver, as the DA suggests they will, a safer New York, and I think there are very good reasons to doubt that these policies will deliver on that, there's a chance that someone else could equally arbitrarily change the enforcement and change the prosecutorial standards. And that could go in the in a very different direction, um, and uh, and then you know and the, and the third area is is policing themselves, and that's and that's another question, um, and all of this affects that on the ground as well. How are police on the ground going to react to? Will they even police these crimes? knowing that they're not likely to be prosecuted. And if they're not willing to police and intervene, will that lead to an escalation in violence in those communities, property destruction, theft, those sorts of things? Which I think you're already seeing. You're already seeing escalations in the murder rate in a lot of these cities. Uh, People, to your point, don't feel safe. They don't feel safe in their life and they don't feel safe in their property. And it is yet another one of those things that is going to contribute to people fleeing big cities. It's interesting that you have these kind of simultaneous movements over time um, that you have. You do have a lot of examples, of especially younger people congregating in larger cities. Again, a lot of them, uh, people who don't have kids yet, going back to the point you previously made, Dan. Um, but then you also have huge numbers of people fleeing those cities. It's been a while since I looked at the Chicago population numbers. But a few years ago, before I moved out, the, sh- the population of Chicago was down to about what it was when uh, arguably the mayor of Chicago was Al Capone. It has been plummeting. New York has been losing people. Los Angeles has been losing people. San Francisco has been losing people. And San Francisco, another clear example of how uh, Kevin Williams at a National Review had a great reported piece about this where employees at Walgreens out there, people will come in, they'll start grabbing stuff and they'll just walk out and nobody says or does anything. And for somebody who's unfamiliar with that, which would be most people, it's all it's jarring. Like, why is nobody trying to do anything? Because any any theft under a thousand dollars of value is essentially is not prosecuted. It's not essentially not prosecuted. It is not prosecuted in San Francisco, which is just an abdication, a clear abdication of the role of those prosecutors in upholding the rule of law in those communities. But something else, Dan, that you reminded me of and what you were saying the swing in all of this, right? It's just so emblematic of emblematic of the problem in our governance and politics in that we have these enormous swings in one direction or the other. Uh, usually as the voters get disgusted with the people that they had just previously empowered, who then came in, tried to get absolutely as much as they could, and they swing it back the other way. And you don't have the normal functioning of our systems, which is supposed to allow us to reach accommodations. Instead, you are going to have probably a very tough on crime reaction to the current circumstance, which probably will uh, address the issue, but simultaneously create a lot of problems similar to what it did from the tough on crime legislation of the 90s. And then you're going to see it swing back the other way again, rather than trying to do that consensus building and trying to find accommodation that is supposed to happen in governance, but is clearly not happening. Let us transition very briefly to another bit of a criminal justice topic, and that is the conviction 
of former Theranos founder and CEO Elizabeth Holmes. Um, if We'll include a link in the show notes to their very good podcast on this from ABC News called The Dropout. Uh, the first season, which examined the story of Theranos, and the second season examined the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. And the, the, the short of this story is this is supposed to be this revolutionary company who's going to be able to run all these blood tests on a single finger prick of blood. And it got all these famous people on the board, Henry Kissinger, General Mattis, George Schultz. Uh, they got all of this money. And at the end of the day, it was all fantasy. It never actually had the technology. Um, there are people who would argue the technology is just not feasible and was never going to be feasible. And Elizabeth Holmes was recently convicted on four of the 11 federal charges that she faced. There's a good piece up on our uh, website. We'll also include the show notes from uh, Titus Teshera about uh, Elizabeth Holmes is the con artist we were all waiting for. And a lot of people have been uh, extrapolating from this. this. What does this say, if not about capitalism itself, at least about the capitalism of Silicon Valley? So I'll just I'll pose that question to you, fine gentlemen. What, if anything, does this say about capitalism? And if not about capitalism writ large, about Silicon Valley's role in our market economy? Well, that, <clears throat> there's much that one could say. The first thing that should, I think, be pointed out is that in any economic system, including the free market economy, there are always going to be quacks and shysters and those who commit fraud. It's not a new phenomena. It's something that's been going on for a very long period of time. The Madoff case was the one I kept thinking of when I read about the uh, this Holmes case. Very similar thing, sort of creating myths, creating stories, creating narratives, which people buy into. And one of the reasons they buy into it is because they play follow the leader. They look and they look around and they say, all my friends are investing in this all these very important people, you mentioned some of them, Eric, have put their weight or their prestige or their human capital or their moral authority behind this product or whatever it ha or, or service or new technology. Therefore, I think it's reasonable to think that they know what they're talking about. Therefore, I would be wise to invest in something like this. So what I think it points to is that Inevitably, we look at market signals, we look at what's happening in the marketplace, and we can't possibly know everything about what's going on in any one particular enterprise or business. So to a certain extent, we are reliant upon following signals. But there's also a role for our own personal due diligence and not to get blindsided by very big promises being made that with a few moments reflection would suggest to us that that sounds far-fetched. That doesn't sound like a wise idea. That doesn't sound technically feasible to me. So it does remind us that even though we are heavily reliant upon market signals when it comes to consumer trends in terms of what people are investing in, etc., there's a role for personal responsibility here, which clearly a lot of people uh, did not follow through on, and including some of the people that you mentioned, Eric, that they clearly didn't do sufficient due diligence on what it was that they were putting their personal prestige behind. So it's not a new problem. It's not a problem that is somehow even specific to the capitalist system, the market economy. It is a heavy reminder, however, of just how much prudence, individual personal prudence, is necessary when it comes to what we buy, what we sell, what we invest in, what we don't invest in. I suppose the Silicon Valley dimension of this is that it's very visual. Silicon Valley has produced some marvelous forms of technology that have transformed the world, in many cases, in many good ways. And maybe there's a tendency on the part of many Americans and the people around the world to think, well, if Silicon Valley is doing this, given their track record, given their success, 
Maybe this is something that I should take very seriously. But Silicon Valley is not infallible. People in Silicon Valley make mistakes all the time. There are fraudsters. There are, shy, there are, there are charlatans. There are quacks in that part of the, of the economy as much as everywhere else. So maybe this will remind us that Silicon Valley is subject to just the same types of trends and problems as the rest of the economy when it comes to this type of problem. Titus makes a good point in this piece about people essentially buying image. That Holmes, uh, is quoting from Titus's piece, Holmes remade her, uh, remade her image into a caricature of Steve Jobs, and everyone believed it because they wanted another Steve Jobs, especially a female one. She cultivated the image of a freak, not just dressing in black all the time, but never blinking and lowering her voice unnaturally. She made herself into an object of fascination, and people were indeed fascinated. I think the other thing that Sam pointed to there that uh, is the way that we have looked at Silicon Valley for too long now is that they seem to promise uh, implicitly or explicitly some kind of transcendence. And we seem to want that from them. And the reality is that they're never going to be able to deliver that kind of real transcendence. Uh, but we, when we hear the kind of outlandish claims that the experts in this field would say, you just you cannot do all of these studies off of a single prick of blood – what we want to believe the magic, right? We want to believe that, well, Silicon Valley has found a way to do all these fascinating and incredible things. They'll find a way to do that too. And eventually you run headlong into reality and you end up with a case like Theranos. This is one of the great things in the piece is talking about how so much of the, of the advertising in the cell was based on a sort of fear of death and how much that Holmes would, in fact, invoke um, painful memories of, of the loss of loved ones in her own life and this sort of, and sort of thing. So there's, there's, there's two sorts of temptations here. One is the temptation of uh, the style over the substance. One is the, the idea that, that you're investing in, in this sort of oddball genius um, and you're not, you're not actually concerned with the product and what it delivers. And the other is like the product itself is very calculated to play on people's anxieties and their fears. And this is, I mean, this is one of the things, you know, you know, fear of death and clinging to life is a vice and it is a vice that is rife in Silicon Valley. There are a lot of people involved in, you know, serious people or people who are considered serious in Silicon Valley, preoccupied with life extension, with bizarre sort of self-monitoring of health and these sorts of things. So it, 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 it fit into that culture in, in more ways than one. Well, let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please take a look in the show notes where you will find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only. And yes, please leave us a nice written review. We would really appreciate it so that more people can find the program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.